Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. I am here with Sarah Forge to give you the May 2011 podcast. Again, this month we have a very full issue. So let's get started, Sarah, with our first paper. Our first paper this month is Higher PEEP in Patients with Acute Lung Injury, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dazenbrook. The objective of this study was to determine whether higher PEEP during volume-limited and pressure-limited ventilation is associated with 28-day mortality or bearer trauma rates in patients with ALI or ARDS. The authors searched multiple online databases and the bibliographies of retrieved papers to identify randomized controlled trials that compared higher and lower PEEP in adult patients with ALI and ARDS who were already receiving volume-limited or pressure-limited ventilation. Two of the authors independently abstracted study-level data, including study design, patient characteristics, study methods, interventions, and main results. The study-level data were pooled with a random effects model unless heterogeneity was low, in which case they used a fixed effects model. The primary outcome was 28-day mortality. Four randomized trials, including 2,360 participants, were evaluated. Higher PEEP had a non-significant trend toward lower 28-day mortality. There was no difference in barotrauma between the two groups. Two studies reported an adjusted hospital death rate, and the pooled results of sensitivity analysis with those adjusted rates were identical to those of the unadjusted analysis. The authors concluded that, in four recent studies that used volume-limited or pressure-limited ventilation in ALI-ARDS patients, higher PEEP was not associated with significantly different short-term mortality or barotrauma. Studies of ventilation strategies that included higher PEEP in patients with ALI or ARDS have yielded conflicting results. It is against this background that the paper by Dassenbrook et al. is of interest. From their systematic review and meta-analysis of four recent studies that use volume-limited and pressure-limited ventilation in ALI or ARDS patients, they conclude that higher PEEP was not associated with significantly different short-term mortality or barotrauma. As I point out in my editorial, higher levels of PEEP should be reserved for patients in whom alveolar recruitment can be demonstrated. In such patients, a higher level of PEEP may improve outcome. Timing of the onset of acute respiratory distress syndrome, a population-based study, is by Shari. The objective of this study was to determine the timing of ALI-ARDS onset in relation to hospital admission and other health care interventions. This was a population-based observational cohort study with a validated electronic surveillance tool which identified patients with possible ALI-ARDS among critically ill adults at Mayo Clinic hospitals. 
Trained investigators independently reviewed electronic medical records and confirmed the presence and timing of ALI-ARDS based on the American-European consensus definition. Of 124 episodes of ALI in 118 patients, only 5 did not fulfill ARDS criteria. The syndrome developed a median 30 hours after hospital admission in 79 patients. ARDS was present on admission in 39 patients, of whom 14 had recent hospitalization, 6 were transferred from nursing homes, and 3 had recent outpatient contact. Only 16 ARDS patients did not have known recent contact with the healthcare system. Compared to ARDS on admission, hospital-acquired ARDS was more likely to occur in surgery patients and had longer adjusted hospital stay. The authors concluded that ARDS in the community most often develops either during hospitalization or in patients who recently had contact with a health care system. These findings have important implications for potential preventive strategies. Shari et al. found that only 14% of ARDS patients in this study did not have known recent contact with the healthcare system. They also found that ARDS developed a median of 30 hours from hospital admission in 67% of patients. As Bajwa points out in his editorial, we already know that ALI can be prevented, at least in part, by strategies such as restricting blood product transfusions and limiting tidal volume. The study by Shari et al. suggests that we have a critical window in which to intervene to prevent the onset of ARDS. Next, we have the paper, Clinical Relevance of Classification According to Weaning Difficulty by Tonellier et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the clinical relevance of the weaning from mechanical ventilation classification system derived from the 2005 International Consensus Conference in patients who receive mechanical ventilation for more than 48 hours and evaluate its correlation with prognosis. This was a retrospective cohort study in a 12-bed ICU in a teaching hospital. Patients were included who required more than 48 hours of mechanical ventilation and who passed a spontaneous breathing trial. Weaning and sedation were monitored according to standardized protocol-directed procedures. Data were collected on a physiological characteristics, mechanical ventilation duration, ICU and hospital stay, and mortality from the medical records database. One-year mortality was assessed with a prospective standardized method. Multivariate logistic regression was performed to evaluate the association between weaning categories and outcome. 329 ventilation episodes were included, in which 115 patients passed at least one spontaneous breathing trial. 34 patients succeeded in their first spontaneous breathing trial, the simple weaning group. 47 patients succeeded in their second or third spontaneous breathing trial or in less than 7 days of weaning, the difficult weaning group, and 34 patients required more than 3 spontaneous breathing trials or more than 7 days of weaning, the prolonged weaning group. 
There were significant differences in ICU and hospital mortality between the simple, difficult, and prolonged weaning groups. Prolonged weaning was an independent risk factor for a longer ICU stay and hospital mortality. However, the weaning process did not impact one-year mortality. The authors concluded that the new weaning classification system is clinically relevant and correlates to ICU and hospital mortality, but not to one-year mortality. Tenelier et al. evaluated the clinical relevance of a ventilator weaning classification system that included patients who required more than 48 hours of mechanical ventilation. Prolonged weaning was an independent risk factor for longer ICU stay and hospital mortality. However, the weaning process did not impact one-year mortality. Interestingly, the failure rate of the first spontaneous breathing trial was 46%. As Steele points out in his editorial, in patients who fail a spontaneous breathing trial, it is most important to identify the cause and treat that effectively so that the subsequent spontaneous breathing trial is successful. Steele also encourages a prolonged T-piece trial, not pressure support, to avoid reintubation in difficult-to-wean patients. Leak profile inspection during nasal continuous positive airway pressure is by Baltzen et al. The purpose of this study was to describe abnormal CPAP leak profiles and assess inter-observer reliability in identifying leak profiles and the correlation of leak profiles with leak rate and clinical outcomes. In a sleep disorders clinic, the authors prospectively studied 35 consecutive patients newly diagnosed with moderate or severe OSA and who had undergone diagnosis by polysomnographic and nasal CPAP titration. They analyzed the data recorded by their CPAP machines during the first week of CPAP. Two independent clinical sleep specialists inspected each night's leak profiles. They defined a continuous leak profile segment as a leak increase of greater than or equal to 20 liters per minute for greater than 5 minutes. They defined a serrated leak profile segment as a leak that oscillated up to greater than 20 liters per minute in less than or equal to 5 minutes. With a validated questionnaire, they surveyed the patients about adverse effects. Overall, inter-observer agreement was 88% for continuous leak and 92% for serrated leaks. The kappa values were 0.76 and 0.85, respectively. Deviance between scorers was 14% to 11% for continuous leaks and 15% to 9% for serrated leaks. The duration of manually scored profiles correlated modestly but significantly with the machine-recorded leaks. The mean adherence to CPAP was lower in patients with the highest quartile of continuous leak. Adverse effects increased with increasing serrated leak. The authors concluded that scored leak profiles in patients treated with nasal CPAP can guide clinicians with respect to short-term adherence to nasal CPAP and adverse effects. It is well known that patients treated with nasal CPAP for obstructive sleep apnea often have adverse effects and poor adherence. 
The data from the study by Boltzen et al. suggests that manually scored leak profiles in patients treated with nasal CPAP can guide clinicians with respect to short-term adherence to CPAP and adverse effects. But, as Littleton points out in his editorial, simple interventions such as mask adjustment, heated humidification, nasal steroids, and education are effective and can be performed without analyzing mouth leak. But the results of this study do provide a starting point for analyzing the overwhelming amount of data that come from an adherence report. Next, we have the paper by Lucini et al. Tracheal Secretion Management in the Mechanically Ventilated Patient, Comparison of Standard Assessment and an Acoustic Secretion Detector. The objective of this study was to determine the efficacy of TBA care in detecting retained secretions compared to standard indications. The authors conducted a prospective randomized trial with 72 general ICU patients randomized at intubation into two groups differing only in suctioning indications. The control group underwent at least three scheduled suctionings per day or clinically driven. The secretion detector group indications were device signal or clinically driven. At each suctioning session, the authors recorded the indication for suctioning and the amount of secretions removed. Patients were followed until ICU discharge or extubation. Diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia was confirmed via microbiological analysis of suctioned secretions. The authors recorded 1,705 suctionings in the control group and 1,354 in the secretion detector group. The secretion detector group had fewer suctionings per day and a lower rate of unnecessary suctionings. In the secretion detector group, 97% of the suctionings were performed following the signal from the TBA care device. In the control group, clinical deterioration was the most frequent indication for suctioning. The incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia was similar in the groups. The authors concluded that the TBA care device seems to give valid and timely indications for suctioning, anticipating clinical deterioration due to secretion retention, and reducing unnecessary suctionings. Lucini et al. assessed the use of a secretion detector that analyzes breath sounds and indicates the need for suctioning. In the group in which the secretion detector device was used, there were fewer suctionings per day and fewer unnecessary suctionings. The incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia was similar in the two groups. Although interesting, additional study will be needed to determine the cost-effectiveness of this device. A new heat and moisture exchanger for laryngectomized patients, endotracheal temperature and humidity, is by Sheenstra et al. The objective of this study was to assess the endotracheal temperature and humidity and clinical effects of two models of a new heat and moisture exchanger, the R+, which has regular breathing resistance, and the L+, which has lower breathing resistance. The authors measured endotracheal temperature and humidity in 10 laryngectomized patients for 10 minutes each, with and without the HMEs. They sequentially tested four HME models in randomized order, R+, L+, Provox Normal, and Stomvent. 
They also assessed the short-term clinical and practical effects of the r and l in a prospective three-week trial with 13 laryngectomized patients. The r and l had better humidification than the Provox normal. During the three-week study period, seven of the 13 patients reported noticeably lower mucus production with r and l the authors concluded that the R plus and L plus had better heating and humidification than the Provox normal. Although the STOM vent also performed well, its design is less convenient for laryngectomized patients. Further HME improvement is still warranted and should focus on improving the HME's heating capacity. Shenstra et al. assessed the endotracheal temperature and humidity and the clinical effects of two models of new HME in 10 laryngectomized patients. They found that the new devices provide a better heating and humidification than the device used previously in their practice. They also report that the newer devices are more convenient for laryngectomized patients. Hypoxemia adds to the CURB-65 pneumonia severity score in hospitalized patients with mild pneumonia is by Sands et al. The objective of this study was to determine the risk factors associated with hypoxemia and the influence of hypoxemia on clinical outcomes in hospitalized patients with mild pneumonia. The authors performed a multicenter prospective cohort study of 585 consecutive hospitalized patients with mild pneumonia. They stratified the patients according to presence of hypoxemia defined as PaO2 FiO2 ratio less than 300 millimeters mercury on admission. They assessed the risk factors associated with hypoxemia, hypoxemia's influence on the course of pneumonia, and clinical outcomes with multivariable regression. 50% of the patients had hypoxemia on admission. The risk factors independently associated with hypoxemia were bilateral radiological involvement, history of COPD, and hypoalbuminemia. The hypoxemic patients had longer hospital stay, higher ICU admission rate, higher rate of severe sepsis, and higher mortality than the non-hypoxemic patients. The authors concluded that hypoxemia in patients with mild pneumonia is independently associated with several adverse clinical and radiological variables, and the hypoxemic patients had worse clinical outcomes than the non-hypoxemic patients. Therefore, additional attention should be paid to the presence of hypoxemia regardless of a low CURB-65 score. Sands et al. evaluated the risk factors associated with hypoxemia and the influence of hypoxemia on clinical outcomes in a multicenter prospective cohort study of hospitalized patients with mild pneumonia. The hypoxemic patients had longer hospital stay, higher ICU admission rate, higher rate of severe sepsis, and higher mortality than the non-hypoxemic patients. The authors correctly suggest that additional attention should be paid to the presence of hypoxemia, regardless of a low CURB-65 score. Next, we have the study by Mascarenhas et al., population-based study on the prevalence of spirometric obstructive pattern in Porto, Portugal. 
The objective of this study was to estimate the prevalence of obstructive pattern on spirometry in a representative sample of adults from Porto, Portugal. The authors conducted a health survey between 2001 and 2003, and 758 participants greater than or equal to 40 years old had reliable spirometry. They used a structured questionnaire to collect demographic, clinical, social, and behavioral data. Obstructive pattern was defined as FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 70%. Logistic regression was performed to quantify the association between sociodemographic and clinical factors and outcome. The participants' mean age was 58.5 plus or minus 11.5 years, and 62% were women. The prevalence of spirometric obstructive pattern was 10.7% in men and 9.1% in women. The age-adjusted odds ratio for cumulative smoking exposure of less than and more than 20-pack years, in comparison with never-smokers, were 3.49 and 3.91 among men and 1.47 and 2.68 among women, respectively. Previously diagnosed obstructive lung disease was reported by 30.9% of the participants with spirometric obstructive pattern. Spirometry confirmed obstructive lung disease in 20.5% of subjects who self-reported COPD. The authors concluded that the prevalence of spirometric obstructive pattern was high. Considering Portugal's position in the smoking epidemic, together with the aging of the population, an increase in the prevalence of obstructive lung disease in older people and in women can be expected. Their results confirmed the limited validity of self-reported obstructive lung disease in epidemiological studies. In this study, the prevalence of spirometric obstructive pattern was high. Considering Portugal's position in the smoking epidemic, together with the aging of the population, an increase in the prevalence of obstructive lung disease is expected in this country. A perhaps more generalizable finding is the limited validity of self-reported obstructive lung disease in epidemiological studies. Effect of albuterol on expiratory resistance in mechanically ventilated patients is by Condili et al. The objective of this study was to examine the effect of inhaled albuterol on expiratory resistance and the correlation of albuterol-induced changes in expiratory resistance with end inspiratory resistance and the expiratory flow volume relationship. They studied 10 mechanically ventilated patients with COPD exacerbation before and 30 minutes after administration of albuterol. They obtained flow volume curves during passive expiration and divided the expired volume into five equal volume slices, then calculated the time constant and dynamic effective deflation compliance of the respiratory system of each slice via regression analysis of the volume flow and post-occlusion volume tracheal pressure relationships, respectively. For each slice, they calculated expiratory resistance as the time constant divided by the effective deflation respiratory system compliance. Albuterol significantly decreased the expiratory resistance and increased the rate of lung emptying toward the end of expiration. No correlation was found between the albuterol-induced changes in expiratory resistance and that of end inspiratory resistance. 
Only at the time of expiration did albuterol-induced changes in the expiratory flow-volume relationship correlate with changes in expiratory resistance in all patients. The authors concluded that, in patients with COPD, albuterol significantly decreases expiratory resistance at the end of expiration. In mechanically ventilated patients, neither inspiratory resistance nor the whole expiratory flow-volume curve may be used to evaluate the bronchial dilator response of expiratory resistance. In this study, albuterol significantly decreased expiratory resistance. Interestingly, however, no correlation was found between the albuterol-induced changes in expiratory resistance and end inspiratory resistance. In patients with COPD, albuterol decreased resistance at the end of expiration, but neither inspiratory resistance nor the whole expiratory flow volume curve was useful to evaluate the bronchodilator response of expiratory resistance. Our final original research paper this month, Retrospective Monitoring in the Management of Persistent Asthma, is by Cortis et al. The objective of this study was to investigate patient adherence to a retrospective diary card monitoring method in patients with poorly controlled persistent asthma in a clinical management setting, develop improved methods for fast manual data entry into a computer, and generate informative graphs of the data. In 115 consecutive adult patients, the authors applied a diary card monitoring method in which the patient records symptom score and peak expiratory flow. They analyzed the diary cards of 84 patients. They used Sigma plot software to graph the data and linear regression to analyze the relationship between days of expected diary card completion and days of actual correct diary card completion. Linear regression gave an overall correlation coefficient of 0.65. Surprisingly, the correlation values in patients with mild, moderate, and severe asthma were 0.24, 0.44, and 0.99, respectively, revealing a striking correlation between adherence and severity. Moreover, when the authors arbitrarily set 75% as the minimum acceptable rate of days of completed diary card entries, 68% of the patients were in the over 75% category, but 100% of the patients with severe asthma were above the 75% cutoff. The graphing method tested proved user-friendly, flexible, and quick allowing computerized processing of 30 days of datasets in 5 minutes and generation of high-quality self-explanatory graphs that facilitate rapid management decision-making via visual pattern recognition. The authors concluded that, in a clinical setting, retrospective monitoring of patients with moderate and severe persistent asthma by symptom score and peak expiratory flow is feasible, and patient adherence appears to be good, particularly in patients with severe asthma. The authors recommend a lower priority on retrospective monitoring in patients with mild persistent asthma. Monitoring should be carried out according to a definite follow-up protocol. Improving the quality and standardization of monitoring graph is a priority. Cortis et al. investigated patient adherence to a retrospective diary card monitoring method in patients with poorly controlled persistent asthma. 
They found that retrospective monitoring of patients with moderate and severe persistent asthma by symptom score and peak expiratory flow is feasible and patient adherence appears to be good, particularly in patients with severe asthma. However, they recommend a lower priority on retrospective monitoring in patients with mild persistent asthma. We publish reviews this month on the topics of anemia in COPD, superior vena cava syndrome in thoracic malignancies, and a respiratory care year-in review on invasive mechanical ventilation, non-invasive ventilation, pediatric mechanical ventilation, and aerosol therapy. We also publish a special article on the topic of transitioning the respiratory therapy workforce for 2015 and beyond from the task force established by the AARC to identify likely new roles and responsibilities of respiratory therapists. We finish off the issue with three case reports and two teaching cases. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.